Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. In today's podcast, I speak with Sabrina Heller, a clinical social worker in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who's used dialectical behavior therapy, also referred to as DBT, in a variety of clinical settings, including an inpatient eating disorders clinic and an outpatient substance abuse treatment program. We talk about the goals of DBT, some of the techniques, skills training, the three mind states, reasonable mind, emotion mind, and wise mind, and how Sabrina incorporates DBT into her work with her clients. DBT is an evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy developed by Marsha Linehan and her colleagues at the University of Washington in Seattle for suicidal clients who meet criteria for borderline personality disorder. Now, when I say that it's an evidence-based treatment, I mean that as of 2007, as of today's podcast, DBT has more randomized trials demonstrating efficacy in the treatment of borderline personality disorder and suicidal behaviors than any other approach, including psychodynamic or even other cognitive behavioral treatments. A 2006 study compared DBT to expert therapies and found that participants who had received DBT had better outcomes. For more information about the empirical evidence supporting dialectical behavior therapy, please visit the Social Work Podcast website at socialworkpodcast.com. I saw Dr. Linehan speak at the American Association of Suicidology Conference in Seattle, Washington in June of 2006. During her presentation, she said that if the name CBT had not already been taken, she would have called her approach CBT. She also said that although DBT is an evidence-based approach for treating people with borderline personality disorder, she initially sought to develop a more effective treatment for people with suicidal behaviors. During her research, she noticed that many of her clients met criteria for borderline personality disorder because funding for research tends to favor projects that are tied to diagnoses such as BPD rather than a set of behaviors such as suicide attempts, Dr. Linehan found that she could only get funding if she discussed her treatment in relation to the diagnosis, not the behaviors. So, even though DBT has become identified as a treatment for borderline personality disorder, it was originally developed to treat people with self-harm behaviors such as self-cutting, suicide thoughts, and suicide attempts. Standard DBT addresses the following five functions. One, increasing behavioral capabilities. Two, improving motivation for skillful behavior through contingency management and reduction of interfering emotions and cognitions. Three, assuring generalization of gains to the natural environment. Four, structuring the treatment environment so that it reinforces functional rather than dysfunctional behaviors, and five, enhancing therapist capabilities and motivation to treat patients effectively. These functions are divided among the four following modes of service delivery. One, weekly individual psychotherapy, that's an hour a week. Two, group skills training, that's two and a half hours a week. Three, telephone consultation, and that's as needed within the therapist's limits to ensure generalization, and four, weekly therapist consultation team meetings, and these are used to enhance therapist motivation and skills to provide therapy for the therapists. Well, those are some of the more technical aspects of dialectical behavior therapy. Let's go now to my interview with Sabrina Heller, where we take the clinician's perspective of what dialectical behavior therapy is like in action. Sabrina, thanks for being here today. Thanks for talking about dialectical behavior therapy. Thank you. So first question, what is dialectical behavior therapy? Marsha Winnahan from the University of Washington combines cognitive behavioral therapy with Eastern Zen Buddhism and the concept of mindfulness. She found that with her clients that had borderline personality disorder and were self-injurious, a lot of times therapists would, would overestimate how, how helpful they were being, and their clients would still not stop cutting or burning or, or ending up back in the hospital, and therapists would get very frustrated and end up punishing their clients by asking them to leave therapy, and she found that none of that kind of stuff worked for her. So it sounds like DBT is a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and this Eastern approach of mindfulness. Yeah, very much so. She, she still focuses on 
challenging cognitive distortions and doing behavior chain analyses. A huge part of borderline personality disorder is emotional dysregulation and feeling either disassociative and not being able to be present in the moment and always worrying and transitioning between feelings. So she really wanted people to stay in the moment while they were in therapy. Okay, so these were ways that she could help the therapeutic process by teaching some of these techniques and taking it from more of an Eastern approach. It also challenges therapists to rethink the way that they do therapy and the way that they view their clients. So it's not just kind of, it's work on both parts, not just the clients, but also the therapists. So it sounds like there are some basic assumptions of dialectical behavior therapy that are perhaps a little different than mm-hmm. assumptions of maybe uh, strict cognitive behavior therapy or, or certainly some of the other therapies, uh, psychoanalysis, for example. Yeah, um, I, I think a main one for her is that clients cannot fail in therapy. There's nothing that clients do that would make them a failure in therapy. And she also talks a lot about that therapists actually can fail in what they do. And even if therapists don't fail, the therapeutic you know, relationship itself can fail. You know, she talks a lot about therapists getting a lot of support. They have weekly consultations. It's not just the client working on something. It's also the therapist working on it equally with the client. So she really holds the therapist accountable for the for the success of the treatment. Yeah, she does. And she talks a lot about there's so much counter-transference and transference that happens between client and therapist that many times therapists will get very burned out and they'll get those buttons pushed and they end up referring to clients as the borderline and it becomes this huge fiasco and eventually that client just ends up leaving and getting the revolving door syndrome and she really wanted to decrease that so she made it such that therapists had to really take a look at how they were viewing their clients and how they were labeling their clients and and how they viewed the therapeutic process itself. You mentioned that one of the assumptions of therapy is that clients can't fail. Mm -hmm. Are there other assumptions of therapy? Yes, there are. She really talks that clients are really trying the best that they can and that um, at the same time they want to improve. And the whole concept of dialectics is that within every dysfunction that there's a function and that you have to want to change at the same time accepting where you're at. Clients want to improve, and they're doing the best that they can, but at the same time, they have to try harder, they have to do better, and they have to become more motivated to change. So those are the, you know, the first three assumptions. She also talks about that it is relatively understandable that at some point, clients actually do want to die. Her, you know, the overarching principle is you know, building a life worth living, and she really believes that when a client enters therapy, their lives are unbearable as being lived, and that they do indeed want to die or injure themselves. She validates that and says, your life is currently unbearable as it is being lived, and that they have to learn how to live differently in all contexts, not just at work or with their friends, but in all aspects of their lives, because their their disorder permeates all different parts of their life. So it sounds like there's this idea of the dialectic, which which you mentioned, but let's let's talk about that a little bit more in depth, because I think that that's one of the key components of dialectical behavior therapy, and I want to make sure people understand it. You said that um, one of the main dialectics is this idea of accepting where you are and also changing. Yeah. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Dialectics was originally a philosophical view of the stress diathesis model, and you know everything has an opposing force. It's really finding out that there is a black and there's a white, and it's finding the gray. And a lot of times, individuals will go from black to white to black to white and have that ongoing chaotic type of internal dialogue. And dialectic says, well, that's the way the world is. There are these two opposite poles. And so the the goal of therapy is to move towards the middle. And she uses a metaphor of a seesaw as her metaphor for the therapeutic alliance. And she says that on one side, there's a therapist. And on the other side, there's the client. The overarching goal is for it to be equal and level and that any move the therapist makes directly affects the client and they you know move the client makes directly affects the therapist and there should be no you know unbalanced chaos going on and once you're equally in the middle and everything's balanced out she talks about rising to the next level and then you're on another seesaw trying to equal out a different type of issue and she uses another metaphor about being on a tightrope and how you know every time the client falls back and something happens the the therapist has to lean back in her own right and pull the client back up so that they both are 
on that tightrope. And I think her general principle is, you know, if the therapist falls, he or she has enough coping skills to get back up after that fall. But many times when a, a client falls, they don't have those skills yet and they might lay there for a while. And that laying there for a while can be really detrimental. And eventually they they may or may not get back up depending on the seriousness. But when they get back up, they have to rebuild all of that. So it's all about while in treatment, keeping that balance going on. So the idea of having a balance is really central. That is, that sounds like that is the dialectic yeah, in dialectical yeah. behavior mm-hmm. therapy. So how does a DBT therapist create the balance? What well, sort of things do they do? There are many different things. Lots of therapists will utilize DBT in an eclectic manner with what other what other things are going on in the program. But there are contracts and there are rules. And a lot of the rules and, and contracts have to do specifically with things that individuals with borderline personality disorder may struggle with. So she has things like, you know, attendance contracts. You can miss up to four sessions. And if you miss more than four, then you know that you're going to be discharged and you cannot come back into therapy until that whole cycle of therapy is finished. And so she talks about... The balance is you know what's going to happen. And so if you make the choice to miss four in a row, then at the fourth session, you know you're gone. But at the same time, you don't have anxiety at level one, two, and three. You know that you're always going to be welcome back. And so that creates that balance of these are the consequences for your actions, but we're going to work with you and you don't have to be overly anxious and and you don't have to just drop out and roll out of treatment without anyone knowing where you are. You're always welcome to come back until this time. There is a lot of phone coaching, so keeping the balance of call me before you cut yourself. You know, if you call me afterwards, she goes to that behavior modification type thing with the conditioning and she says, if I talk to you after you hurt yourself, then I'm reinforcing your negative behavior. But if you call me before and I can coach you through it, then you've just mediated yourself. You don't have to hurt yourself in order to find your own personal middle ground. You can do it in a different manner. So those are some of the techniques or some of the ways that the DBT therapist Mm -hmm. uh, encourages that sense of balance. Yeah, um, a lot of times traditional DBT groups are always ran with two therapists in in a group, and they also have individual therapy about an hour to an hour and a half a week. And there's a lot of balance that has to go on between the individual therapist and the group therapist. A lot of splitting occurs between the two of them. That's another way that they kind of create balances, being able to point out when therapy-interfering behaviors are occurring and making the client aware of how that's negatively affecting their, their therapy and other clients and group possibly. I want to get back to something that you mentioned earlier. You were talking about um, finding the functional and the dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and, and maybe what some examples of that sure. uh, could be. The DSM criteria goes through you need to have five of these nine symptoms, and it really points out the pathology. So Linehan has a dimensional approach, and her approach takes into consideration all the systems that would be involved. And the dialectical view talks about that within a dysfunctional behavior, there is function. It serves a purpose. And for many borderline clients, if for some, you know, say they they injure themselves, it looks unhealthy, it looks dysfunctional, but it may help them ground themselves. It may help them take themselves out of that moment. Um, If they're, you know, addiction, if... If an individual is drinking or using drugs to mitigate mental health conditions or to disassociate, it serves a purpose for them. Although it's unhealthy, they've survived this long. And so she really sees people as survivors and says, well, I'm not going to berate you over the fact that you do this, but you do know that this works in the short term. It feels good or gets you out of yourself but in the long term it causes conflict within relationships and it causes you to lose jobs and self-esteem so she really pushes them to look at a functional way to do something that they had been doing dysfunctionally before but at the same time doesn't punish them for the fact that they were doing it and and gives them validation i understand that this was the only way you knew how to do it now we're going to teach you something different And going back to the dimensional approach as well, she really takes into account gender differences. And she talks a lot about the principle of interrelatedness and the principle of wholeness. And so women in our society a lot of times are raised to be more group-oriented, family-oriented. And our culture rewards people that are more individualistic. Because of that difference and because of the difficulty with being able to connect the two and be able to be an individual 
with your own belief system and your own self-worth at the same time being a family member. A lot of times individuals will just split that and either be one or the other. And she talks about all these things kind of conflict within an individual and they always feel like they have to choose sides. It's about the process, not necessarily the content. That's the essential nature of life. And so she really gets people to be more aware of the process of how they do things and the role of conflict within the process of change. And she acknowledges that there will be constant conflict, and that's how we decide whether or not to change. And sometimes individuals will get stuck at the point where they should be making a change. And so when they feel conflict, they escape through avoidance or hurting themselves or drinking or they become emotionally dysregulated and take it out on people through violence or isolating themselves. So there's that, you know, I hate you, don't leave me. You know, I'm going to push you away, but please, please, please come back. To them, it's equally as confusing. Like, she doesn't say that in their minds that it's not torturous. You know, she acknowledges that it's very difficult to understand why they continue to do these things that pull people away from them. And so teaching them a new way to not have to deal with that, you know, that chaotic type of relationship with other people. Let me see if I understand uh, what you're, what you're uh, talking about here with regards to this dimensionality and this, this worldview. A therapist might not focus so much on the specific words that somebody is using, but, but rather try and point out patterns, regular behaviors that they might engage in, even if the content of those behaviors differs. Yeah. She, you know, she acknowledges that structure is somewhat important. So CBT is very much structured. There is a, you know, there's a thought, there's a feeling, there's a behavior, which you react to and becomes an event. And that's that structure. And, and yes, you know, to some degree, you do need to be able to break that down. But she also focuses on what is the intention? Why are you doing this? What does it look like? You know, you could be sitting, and this goes back to the therapist overestimating. She talks about apparent competence. A lot of people, you know, might go to work and appear competent and do a great job. But when they go home and have an interpersonal relationship, they might hurt themselves or be isolative or have not had a stable relationship without addiction being present for 10 years. And so she really encourages, you know, it's a it's all over the place. It, you know, it's a pervasive pattern. So at work it might not show up and everyone might think, oh, this person's fine. And in reality, when they have less control over a situation, like say in a, a relationship with a person, they feel out of control inside and therefore try to regain control through an eating disorder or an addiction or, or self-injurious behavior. And again, it's the process of how does that happen? And she, she acknowledges that there is a chain of events that happens, but she also pays attention to in group, how do people react? How do people dress? How do people present themselves? Um, you know, they may say one thing, but their dress and their appearance says a completely different thing. And a lot of times that conflict does not always become aware to the client they don't under you know they might not see that they are dressed in a seductive manner but are saying things that don't match up or that their their facial affect that their affect does not fit the situation it might not make sense to them so it's pointing that out as things happen rather than ignoring it and just wanting to get done with this is today's lesson or this is what you're supposed to learn sabrina you were saying that Linehan and DBT takes uh, sort of a dimensional view mm-hmm. of the problem. How would that then affect the uh, the targets and goals of well, DBT? Uh, she has four separate types of parts for the goals. And her goals really do move in a progressive fashion because if you don't deal with the first phase of goals, it's very difficult to get to the higher level actualization type goals. So she talks about reducing and eliminating suicidal and parasuicidal behaviors. So the first thing that interferes with these individuals' lives is the fact that they hurt themselves and attempt to kill themselves or could accidentally kill themselves or even use drugs and alcohol or have an eating disorder, which could potentially kill them. And I like, you know, she talks about parasuicide, and she doesn't call it anything else. She she, uh, talks about how she calls it parasuicide because... Some people would call it attention-seeking behavior or manipulative suicidal gestures. And she takes the motivational hypothesis out of the word prior to suicide. She doesn't like the fact that people just assume that when someone hurts themselves that they're trying to reach out and get attention and manipulate people. She 
sees it as, you know, the authenticity that they might actually want to die and this is how they mitigate their feelings. So she, that's her first goal is to, you know, make sure that that sort of stuff decreases in nature until it's completely eliminated. And she does that by the phone coaching and there are rules for the group members. You know, you're not allowed to come in and war story about your self-injurious behavior. You can't talk about it outside of group in that, you know, that group mentality type thing where people start getting ideas on how to hurt themselves and get better at their eating disorder. These are all kinds of behaviors that you would see in a group of people that have maladaptive coping skills and talk to each other about maladaptive coping skills. She also talks about reducing therapy interfering behaviors. So we talked about earlier the attendance contract. Not showing up to group is a therapy interfering behavior. And having people wonder where you are and having you feel like you might not be able to return, leading to increased anxiety, which could then lead to hurting yourself or making impulsive decisions. She makes it a a general rule and she says this is what you can expect. And she uses the metaphor that, you know, therapy for a client is like, climbing up an aluminum ladder out of hell and the bottom rungs without shoes and gloves and the bottom rungs are extremely extremely hot and so a therapy interfering behavior would be you know the client reaches halfway through and lets go of the ladder and falls back into the pit and she describes that eventually because hell is hotter than that ladder you know that client will eventually get back up on that ladder and climb again and every time they jump off when things get too hard that's therapy interfering and she also says that Therapists can also have it. So she talks about while client is on this ladder, if, you know, therapist comes out with a blowtorch and starts, you know, trying to get the client to move faster, the, the therapist is actually interfering with the therapeutic process, trying to make the client go faster than maybe he or she can, and that both of those circumstances have to kind of be eliminated. She talks about behaviors that destroy quality of life. So, you know, having depressive symptoms and not taking care of them, excessive alcohol or drug abuse, phobias, eating disorders, all those other types of things that may or may not be a symptom of the actual personality disorder, but those things that even if you weren't hurting yourself anymore, if you didn't leave your house because you were terrified, you still wouldn't be happy. And finally, she talks about skills to control attention. And this goes into the mindfulness. A lot of times we pay attention to 10 different things at one time, not giving any of them our full attention. And that a lot of times anxiety heightened by continuing to perseverate about things that one has no control over, actually, you're not paying attention. She talks about having to tolerate emotions, you know, sitting with things, not trying to escape and avoid emotional pain. And she makes it a point that you don't have to like it, you have to accept it. Just because you accept something does not mean you have to enjoy it, but you have to acknowledge that it's there so then you can work through it rather than pretending or disassociating and saying that it's not real. The first goal then was from moving out of control to moving in control. Yes. And that would be uh, out of control with behaviors such as suicidal behaviors or perhaps drinking, promiscuity. The goal isn't to eliminate these behaviors. Right. There's not this sense of extinction, but rather an acceptance that you might feel a certain way And that might be uncomfortable, but Mm -hmm. you need to accept it because that's not going to go anywhere. Right. And so, you know, her first part is acceptance. It doesn't mean you're actually working on it. You're just acknowledging that it's there. And so her second part is moving from being emotionally shut down to experiencing fully. And And, and this is a new goal? Yes, this is the second goal. And so how do you get from being shut down, to being able to experience what's going on and then take the steps to rectify them and to work with them. You know, clients don't have to suffer anymore in quiet desperation. I've told my clients, quiet desperation is dysfunctional and it serves a purpose. When you just sit with things, you're actually making a choice. It might serve the purpose that you're going to stay miserable and people choose to stay miserable at some point and they might have really negative core beliefs about themselves going back to the CBT, having other people react miserably towards them might fulfill those core beliefs that they're a bad person or that they're not worth anything. So her skills training is, you know, how do you, how do you find out what mindset you're in? She talks about wise mind and emotion mind and reasonable mind. And she talks about the pros and the cons and how 
many times borderline individuals are the dramatic folks of the world, and so they're kind of stuck in that emotional mind and everything it happens with their emotions. And so she she gets them to figure out a way to logically work through things. And that's that's like the biggest part of the second step. But as and, – and they might still be parasuicidal and they still might have therapy-interfering behaviors, but they've come to acknowledge that that's what those things are called and that they continue to work on them. So just because, you know, the first goal – is being worked on, it, it never really stops. You never stop working on the fact that you might want to get out of group and run screaming down the hall. You know, you might always want to do that. And then you get the skills training, which teaches you how to not get up and, and freak out and leave. And all of these are to help clients learn to be more fully present with their emotions and yeah. their experience rather than feeling something and then shutting down. Yeah, I used to work on an eating disorders unit, and we did this exercise you know we used a lot of dbt and it was like that half smile and and she talks about you know your body and your brain communicate and so even if you are in the worst mood we used to have our girl sit down and and pretend to smile and it you know her her goal is you know after you sit there and you half smile when you're in a bad mood or when you're stressed out or when you wake up in the morning <clears throat> the ability for that to raise your mood and for you to be more conscious about when you smile your brain might be getting the signal that you're getting happier. And, you know, that's a good way of kind of putting it together where you might feel a certain way, but you don't have to feel that way for the rest of the day and let that dictate how your your day goes. So what is the next goal of DBT? Building an ordinary life and solving ordinary problems. Borderline individuals might feel that everything needs to be a crisis for it to be solved. And it goes back to the thought that a lot of this stems from childhood abuse and neglect and an invalidating environment, and then they learn that people will respond to them only when things are at their worst. And so everything then becomes a crisis. And she says, you don't have to be in crisis to solve things. Things can't, You can solve them as they come up and not let it get to that point where you feel you need to go to the hospital or hurt yourself or you know destroy a relationship with somebody you can solve it while it's just a mere, you know, an, a simple problem. So identifying things uh, when they're less severe and recognizing, oh, okay, I can do something about this now. But having the trust and, and the willingness to see that people might be paying attention to it when it's a small problem. A lot of times people will you know, bring with them. No one's going to care about this. And there's cognitive distortions of, you know, mind reading and fortune telling and thinking that they'll know when someone will care. And many times people might be caring while it's a small problem and you might deny that it's a problem and say, this is nothing and stuff the emotions until it becomes, you know, I'm almost losing my job because I've caught off five times in a row. And, you know, because I, I felt really depressed and, rather than talking about the depression on day one when it first, you know, came up. We've talked about three goals so far, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about the, the, this most recent one, building an ordinary life, solving ordinary problems. We also talked about moving from being emotionally shut down to uh, being able to more fully experience emotions. Yeah. And then the first one was moving from being out of control to in control. Mm-hmm. Now, do these goals have to occur sequentially? Do you start with the first goal, then move to the second, then the third? Or can you start with this idea of solving ordinary problems first? They go linearly, but I think that they also go in a in a cycle. I think of it as, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. And so if you don't have your basic needs met, if you're going to be homeless because you haven't paid your rent, because you got fired, because you were drinking on the job then you might not have time for the, you know, the fourth goal is, is the, the goal of spirituality. You might not have time to be spiritual. You might just need to eat. And if you're still hurting yourself and you're in the hospital for three months at a time and you've been, you know, committed and all, all those uh, crisis-ridden situations, you might not be thinking about ordinary problems because you haven't learned yet to identify that you have ordinary problems. All your problems have become 
catastrophic. And I saw that Marshall Linehan has a video, I think it's a 2003 video, about uh, managing your crises Yeah, that, yeah. that is intended for clients. Mm-hmm. You, you briefly mentioned that fourth goal, mm-hmm. and, and it does sound like these have been developed to really be done sequentially, um, although recognizing, of course, that people go through cycles. Right. So you might go through one, two, and then back to one, and so then you go two, three, and then back to one, then yeah. two, and then... And so what is the fourth goal? She calls it incompleteness to completeness. It's the thought that spirituality and that, that sense of finding your own personal higher power, if you will, might give you, might fill that void within you. And so she talks about people going to churches and synagogues and mosques to find themselves once they've learned to deal with other people, once they've learned to mitigate their circumstances and not hurt themselves, to really find faith in something bigger than themselves. This is kind of the step where you may want to change career paths and you recognize that you've been miserable at your job for 10 years and you need to do something else. Or, you know, changing relationships. You might not be ready to do that when you are first coming into therapy. And it doesn't mean just, you know, relationships with husband or wife, but even family relationships, putting down those boundaries, maybe not talking to people anymore or beginning to talk to people and and really trying to figure out how you can stay safe at the same time working sequentially through all these goals all the time. What are some actual uh, skills or techniques that a therapist would use to help a client move through these goals? For the the power of suicide and the moving out of control, she she does a lot of meditation. Um, a lot of times in groups, there's uh, it's a sounding bowl, I believe, and it's used in some prayer ceremonies in Buddhism, and that will ring and that will signify the beginning of group or the break of group. A lot of sort of guided imagery and, and drawing attention to breathing patterns and you know where you are she does a rubber band you know every time you find yourself becoming distracted snap a rubber band in a non-self injurious way of course doing those things to draw attention to what is currently going on within a person another intervention she she talks about is a chain analysis and this kind of comes from the cbt a client might come in and say i got into an awful argument and i started to throw things and or in the night, I cut myself and I felt better. And so the chain analysis is a sequential how, when, why, where, who was involved, and really mapping it and being really aware. The same concept as, you know, relapse starts way before the relapse starts. It's usually a cycle. Usually, you know, there's a precipitating event and it makes you feel badly and then it ignites your core belief and your distorted thinking and then you react impulsively. And she talks about, you know, when, when did doing something unhealthy cross your mind? And then when did the situation become unbearable? And she, there's a difference between when you first started to think in an unhealthy, distorted manner and when you felt that that situation just crossed the line and you couldn't take anymore and you acted in the way that you, you would usually. In regards to how the therapist would deal with that, she talks about being really, really persistent, getting a clear and detailed sequence. Don't accept, I don't know... I wasn't really thinking anything, you know, really getting the individual to, again, control their attention and say, I was thinking this, this was going on, there was music in the background, I couldn't hear myself think, the dog was barking, I felt, I started to feel anxious, and I started to feel overwhelmed, and then he started to yell, and I didn't take my time out like I said I should, and I didn't tell him how I felt. I told him he was an idiot, and then he got upset, and that made, you know, and going on with that until you get to the point where, you know, and then I did this. Focusing on the thought, the feeling, the behavior, and then how that created a new event, which was I hurt myself, and then I felt guilty, and I felt ashamed, and I felt this and that. Confronting, she says, you know, with an edge, you know, using more humor and being an easy manner and kind of being really gentle about how you approach getting them to dictate this, not harshly confronting them and yelling at them and and getting them to feel badly about this process because this whole chain analysis is supposed to be a positive experience that they continue to use once they're out of therapy. So if it's negative for them, they probably won't continue to do it. And she also talks about solution analysis. So hurting yourself is the solution to your problem at that current time or restricting during dinner is your current 
you know, best thinking pattern. She says, you know, find the maladaptive link in, in this whole chain analysis and tell me why you chose this solution. If no other solutions presented themselves, let's talk about why not. She asks, you know, what, what did you need at that time? What were you looking for that you didn't get? And what would be a more adaptive response to that situation? So did your cutting yourself get you what you wanted or did it get you the response you're used to? And at this point, maybe they have some insight. And if they don't, the therapist then helps them brainstorm a list of possible other things that they could have done. And this goes, you know, also into safety planning. Before you're in crisis, you think more logically. Once you're in crisis, emotion mind takes over. And so it's really getting prepared for when I feel in crisis, I will do this. And if that doesn't work, I will do this. And making a running list and putting it somewhere on your refrigerator, you know, on your bathroom mirror. So you have it to look at when you feel that way, you can go through your list and and, and check things off. She comes up with these four solutions that you know, clients could potentially choose. You could solve your problem. You could feel better about the problem. There might not be a solution to every single problem. So you just have to learn to deal with it and reframe your, your thought pattern about it and make it, make it look differently to you. You can tolerate the problem. You can continue to put up with it even if you don't like it. And that may or may not be healthy. Or you could, you could stay miserable. And she always gives that option because there is no power struggle to you can stay miserable. You know, one of her other techniques is kind of like paradox, you know, prescribing the, you know, the, the problem. Go ahead, stay miserable. Tell me how that feels. Tell me how that works out for you. And seeing how the client reacts to that. If the client really has no ideas on how to better solve that problem, it's okay for the therapist to say, well, you know, if I were in that situation, I would probably feel this way, and I might have done this. And seeing how the client responds to that, you know, that goes to validating their experience that they're, they're fresh out and that they now need to be refilled. So two of the tools for change that you just mentioned are the chain analysis and the solution analysis. Yes. Are there other treatment strategies that uh, somebody doing DBT might use with their clients? Yeah. Earlier we talked a little bit about metaphor and the idea that, you know, people really relate to stories and people really join with other people over storytelling. Telling a story and making it fit to the client and having the client be able to see themselves in that story, you know, kind of personalizing it. So we, we, you know, we talked about that hot ladder and that, that metaphor. Another one she talks about is paradox. And she, she really relates this to the cones of Zen practice. And there are stories that Buddhist students have to read that have no logical solution. They're, you know, the sound of the one hand clapping idea. The dilemma is that there is a dilemma and it may or may not be solvable. She'll say to a client, you know, if I didn't care about you, I would try to save you. And the client would get really upset and say, you know, why aren't you trying to save me? You don't care about me. And the whole, the paradox in that is that they are not broken. They don't need to be fixed. The therapist doesn't have to fix or rescue because the client has wise mind, client has intuition, and the ability to do it themselves. Both things can be true and not true at the same time. The client needs to do something differently, but at the same time, they don't necessarily need to be saved. They have the ability. They just, it's kind of like an uncut diamond. They don't, it's not polished yet, but it's there and it's worth something. Two of the strategies that you've mentioned so far, uh, one's metaphor Mm -hmm. and that's sort of telling a story, something that's not real that right. is going on in your client's life, but that they can sort of imagine themselves yes. in, in this situation. And it, it helps them take themselves out of the situation and think about it a little differently. In a more objective point of view, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and then the other part is this paradox. And just generally for social workers, I think the paradox tends to be our, if we did our jobs the best we could, we would no longer have jobs. Right. And so if, you had, if I had a client that said, I need your help, the best way I could help them is to actually make sure they didn't need my help. The worse your day, the better. The more you can work through what you're working on. If you really believe that there's something inherently wrong with you, I think somewhere you also believe that it's never going to be able to go away. And so what would be the point of being in therapy if you think you're unfixable? And so she just takes that whole fixing it thing right out and says, you're fine. You just need to become more healthy and you have it in you. 
What other treatment strategies are used in DBT? There is devil's advocate, and we're all pretty familiar with that. It's, you know, playing the opposite point. And so she uses that proposing against a commitment to therapy and saying, are you, are you really sure you want to be here? This is a huge a huge commitment. It's a whole year of therapy. I mean, are you really up to this? And always making sure that the therapist's argument is weaker than the client's. And the client might come back and say, yeah, you know, I really need this. And and it means more when it comes from the client. So as they hear themselves arguing for change, it becomes very beneficial for them. And so eventually, you know, the client kind of hears the therapist give in. Oh, well, okay, you know, you look like you're ready to do this. I, I think that this is a good choice for you. Rather than the therapist arguing for change and getting into a power struggle where both the therapist and the client end up losing. Extending is also a huge a huge thing that a lot of therapists will do. And, and here you pay attention to the part of an argument or a statement that uh, the client might not be thinking that you'd be paying attention to. So you know, you might be sitting at a session and the client says, you know, I need another another session on Friday. And if you, if you don't give it to me, I'm, I'm going to hurt myself. And it's very serious. I, I think I'm, I'm going to kill myself. And the therapist might say something like, wow, that sounds really serious. I mean, you, you really might need to be hospitalized. We, we can't be talking about when we're going to schedule a session. You're, you're obviously suicidal. And, you know, do you have a plan? And really start talking in depth about that. The client you know, might say, oh, I'm not that serious. I I was just saying that for the purpose of this. And so it's looking at the maladaptive patterns and the therapy interfering behaviors that that would create if you were to be suicidal and, and you would need to leave treatment to go to the hospital and your family would be in crisis. And it goes back to not everything needs to be in crisis prior to it being solved. And so if you really need a session and I cannot offer you one because I I need to have boundaries and it's just not possible, what other things can you do? Can you go out for coffee with your friend or can you set something up with another group member? And coming up with another option besides if I don't get to have another session with you, I'm going to die. There is a gray area in between that. Uh, making lemonade out of lemons and and this one's really this one's really fun you know is that everyone might have lemons in their life but you can make something more positive out of it some individuals talk about there's already lemonade in your life you're just not drinking it you're just not using it and that invalidates the client you know and it makes them feel as if there indeed is lemonade and they just cannot find it indeed some people you know have lemons and you know they're stuck with them and they have no idea what to do with them and Something might be problematic, but you can turn it into an asset. And again, it goes to that function and dysfunction. She really expects therapists to believe that everybody actually does want to change. They're just lacking in skills, not necessarily motivation. Sabrina, I'd like next to talk about skills training. And this is probably the part of DBT that most people are most familiar with. I believe that it has four modules, and uh, my understanding is the basic idea is that people either have lack of motivation or they have lack of skill. And obviously, if people are not motivated, then they're not going to continue in treatment. And so what we're seeing with folks who remain in treatment is that they have lack of skill. And so in the skills training workshop, the therapist has to demonstrate the skills and help the client learn the skills. And there are There are these three separate states of mind that the DBT therapist talks about and teaches the client about. And and you you mentioned them a little earlier. It's the uh, reasonable mind, the emotion mind, and then finally the wise mind. Now, the reasonable mind, this was the calm, cool, and collected mind, right? This is the the rational mind. This is the mind that... um, that is in play when we're making lists, when we're deciding pros and cons, things like that. I've heard that sometimes folks talk to clients about, well, who is it that you think of when you think of somebody with a rational mind or with a reasonable mind? And they'll respond, um, bankers, lawyers, mathematicians, uh, car mechanics, you know, anybody that has to make arguments, who has to be reasonable, who has to be rational, who sort of into the nuts and bolts of things. I also know that it's pretty common in these groups to talk about the pros and cons of what the, ra- what the reasonable mind is. And some of the pros that I've heard of are 
you know, well, thinking rationally, uh, if you if your car runs out of gas, the rational thing to do is to go fill it up, whether you're happy or sad. You can plan. You can make contingencies. Um, you can make lists if you need them. The downside would, of course, be that the the reasonable mind is without feeling, is that this is somebody who's entirely analytical, always breaking things down, and, and really misses out on the, the emotion, very inflexible and rigid. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the other two types of minds, the emotion mind, which is the sort of the the companion to the rational mind, and then, of course, the wise mind, which is the combination of the two. So what is the emotion mind? This is when your emotions are in control and when all your thinking patterns revolve around how you feel. And so the first thing, you know, I'll, when I get to this with my clients, I'll say, how, how is that beneficial? And they might come up with ideas about, well, this is how poetry is written and this is how wars are fought and this is how music is done and this is why people become advocates because there's passion. And yes, and a lot of that has to do with emotions. A certain amount of that is desirable. You know, if we were callous and cold and we wouldn't, those things would not be able to happen and we would probably not be able to join with other human beings. You know, Linehan describes individuals that have borderline personality disorder as the more dramatic folks of the world. You know, again, not using those negative words such as attention-seeking and manipulative and just dramatic folks, you know, have a little bit more or a lot more of this emotional mind. So in the short term, these things might work out well. If you are very angry and you punch a wall for a brief second, you might feel better. In the long term, you might have a broken hand. I work in the addictions field, and so in the short term, when you get high to deal with your problems, it feels good. In the long term, you may go to jail. At that point, when you start thinking about getting high or hurting yourself or not eating or what have you, binging, purging, it's asking yourself, how am I thinking right now? The the distorted thoughts that are in this is that because I feel something, it therefore must be fact. I put to my clients, I say, you, we feel thousands of things a day. And if all of those thousands of things you react on impulsively are all fact, it'll be very difficult to keep up with what you're feeling and what you're thinking and make sense of it all. And many times, you know, people can't really tell you what they were feeling or thinking. Everything goes so quickly. Also, it's good to take into account that this state of mind is made worse if you're sick, if you're hungry, if you're using drugs and alcohol, you probably are not thinking in your most rational mind. And if there are current emotional threats, if you're in an abusive relationship. So a lot of times it's taking care of all those other things as well. You know, it's taking a look at, are you taking care of yourself physically, mentally, you know, spiritually, and being able to realize that emotion mind might be at its highest, the risk for suicide and all these parasuicidal behaviors might be at their highest when an, when an individual is experiencing a lot of other stress. Finally, there is wise mind. And so wise mind is the combination of both. It's that balance that Linehan talks about. Um, you can't overcome reasonable mind or emotion mind. You just have to integrate them together. She really talks about that everyone has this skill. Again, no one's broken. No one is. No one needs to be fixed. We all have intuition. It's finding the way to dig it out and to fully experience it without judging it and just moving through that and always trying to get to think with wise mind and putting yourself back in the center. The other skills, she talks about interpersonal effectiveness. And so this is kind of about being assertive, learning to say no, um, getting what you want. And I talk to my clients a lot, you know, when you are saying something, what are you trying to get? What are other people hearing from you? When you scream, what do they really hear? They start to realize my needs are actually not being met by the way that I speak to other people. So how do I maintain my relationships while at the same time being assertive? She talks about cheerleading statements, saying things like, you know, it's okay for me to not get what I want. I will live. I'm, I'm not going to die. Learning how to ask for things more effectively. You know, how to keep self-respect. And that's a huge thing, not giving up your values and your, your morals and really standing up for yourself, but not becoming aggressive about it. 
distress tolerance. So being able to survive something, going through something that is stressful or painful and giving you the skills in order to be able to do them. The manual that she has really breaks it down. She talks about this is uh, freedom from suffering requires acceptance. And the only way out of hell is by accepting that you're in it and accepting that there is a way out. That accepting something does not mean that it's good. It just means that it is. And this is when she starts to talk about that half smile and pretend, you know, fake it till you make it. Smile, see what happens, see what the worst possible outcome of that would be. And finally, emotion regulation. And so this is all about uh, radical acceptance and reducing your vulnerability and decreasing your suffering and seeing what would happen if every time you would have reacted by doing this, you do the opposite action. When you feel angry, you actually respond in kindness. And when you feel like hurting yourself, you actually do the opposite. You talk to someone about wanting to hurt yourself or you go for a run or to the gym to alleviate some of that tension rather than taking it out on yourself. She has people make pleasant activity schedules and you can kind of do this. You know, what do you do in your free time? And what gives you pleasure? You know, she doesn't say that life should be miserable. You need to enjoy your life. So how do you go about enjoying your life? If, if you always hate your life, you might be more likely to hurt yourself. So if you enjoy your life, then it would make sense that you'd have less desire to want to break your life up. And so, you know, all these skills put together, you continuously go through these skills and you might suffer some problems in certain skills and be really good at others or you might backtrack sometimes and need to revisit going back to wise mind you know people can be very well for 10 years you know say you have an eating disorder and then you get pregnant and you get married well that you know your eating disorder may rise its head again and you've been thinking with wise mind but now you're back in emotion mind so you have to retrain yourself and go through this stuff over and over again even if you're you know you're not in therapy anymore you might need to practice that Well, Sabrina, thanks so much for going over all of this information. This is really a phenomenal amount of information. You've presented it very nicely. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. And, and of course, anybody that's listening, dialectical behavior therapy is an entire therapy model. And if you want to get good at it, you need to get trained in it. And so this is just a general overview. And Sabrina's been kind enough to provide that overview for us. So thanks a lot, Sabrina. We really appreciate it. Sure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So I'm Jonathan Singer. Thanks for being with me today for this episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode, visit our website at socialworkpodcast.com. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, please email me at jonathan at socialworkpodcast.com. And to all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you back here next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.